ED ECMO episode 20, the golden hour. Optimizing the critical first hour on heart-lung bypass. I'm Joe Belezzo. And I'm Zach Shiner. And we're going to walk you guys through the first critical hour of putting somebody on heart-lung bypass. The time where I've screwed up basically every step we're about to talk about. Okay, but before we get there, first coming up is Castle Fest 2015. That's April 14th through 16th. That's next week. Kentucky. Uh, we're Ken- going to Kentucky. <laughs> Kentucky. Ultrasound education in a castle. Can't be cooler than that. And... We're going to be doing a ECMO workshop. It's going to be pretty exciting. We've got ECMO simulators. We've got a cannulation simulation. This is going to be good stuff. Yeah, and then we're going to package that up, right? And we're going to take that to Smack 2015, June 23rd to 26th. Uh, Come on out and check that one out, too. The biggest, the baddest critical care conference there is. And again, we're going to be doing an ECMO workshop. So we got two workshops coming up. Both of them are sold out. But uh, as you get into the next year, we're doing the big one. Joe, what are we doing? Reanimate San Diego. Tell us a little bit about that. Scott Weingart, Joe and I, number of other people, the big names in eCPR. We're going to teach you everything from the very beginning all the way to being certified, being confident to go back to your hospital and put somebody on eCPR. Yeah, so uh, look for that. We're going to be making those announcements soon. Registration will be opening very soon. San Diego, February 2016. Okay, so today we're going to talk a little bit about this first golden hour thing, man. So first, uh, flipped classroom. What we're going to try to do here is get rid of all the nitty-gritty garbage that you kind of need to know, but isn't exactly that much fun to talk about when we're there in real life. So listening to this episode will give you the background so that we can get it down and dirty into the good stuff when we're hanging out in Kentucky. So it's hard to conceptualize some of this stuff, right? But here we're going to try and put it together so you can think about how does this circuit look? Yeah, so first thing, if you guys could, hop on over to the website, edecmo.org slash 20. I've put up there, it's figure one, the custom McKay ECMO circuit. I'd recommend that you click on that, print it out, and have it in front of you while you're listening to this. Not mandatory, but recommended. Also on the site, the ED ECMO eCPR study guide. This is the complete guide. This is everything that we have and how we run eCPR. So Joe, you're going to teach me how to take this thing out of the box. Is that right? So first of all, we're going to do the ECMO circuit setup. So let's just pretend like, Zach, you just cannulated a patient. You did stage one. You put in a five French arterial and a nine French venous, and then you upgraded to stage two. You went to a 21 French venous cannula and a 17 French arterial cannula, and this patient's ready to go. Well, who did all that work to prime the circuit and get everything all set up and ready to go for us? It's usually at our shop, the ECMO nurses. But what does that mean? What does this circuit look like? You have a mess of tubes hanging all over the place. It's kind of this black box of stuff that's happening over on the side. And what we're trying to do here is demystify this. So the first thing you do is you're going to reach into the box that has the circuit. The circuit is PVC tubing that is bioline coated, which is heparin coated, a pump, and an oxygenator. That's it. But when you look at this thing, it's complicated. It looks like it's just a bunch of mess. And you're like, what do I do with that? I don't even know. Yeah, it looks like a monster with a bunch of tentacles and stuff hanging off of it. And really, the easiest thing to do is reach into the box. With one hand, grab the oxygenator. With the other hand, grab the pump and hold them up over your head. And what that's going to do is pull all the tubing out. The patient line tubing is going to sort of fall into the sterile bin there. But you can be holding these two things up. Now, all you've got is a circuit, a circular circuit. Take the oxygenator, plug the oxygenator into the bracket that's on the machine that mounts it. 
take the pump, mount the pump to the pump drive. Now you've got the oxygenator and pump in their right positions. You're going to take the patient line tubing, the tubing that will be connected to the patient eventually, hold it up, hang it from the IV pole. The only purpose of that, Zach, is so that when you go and prime the pump, which we're going to do next, you don't relieve a whole, two liters of fluid all over your ground. And next thing you know, you've got a lady walking by, slips on that thing, and two weeks later, she's walking through with bowling gloves on both hands and dark-colored glasses. Okay, so we've got the pump. You've taken it out of the box. You put the pump and the oxygenator in place. You're holding up these two lines. They're now secure so you don't drop them on the ground. And... What do you do next? Okay, so the next thing you're going to do is basically prime the entire circuit, right? You're going to fill the circuit with fluid. Now, off on the side, we have our uh, priming solution, which is isolite. It's basically a liter of crystalloid. Within each liter of crystalloid, you have to have some heparin. We've got 2,500 units of heparin in each one, and that's kind of connecting to the circuit off on the side. It's a rapid prime solution. We can prime the entire circuit in a matter of a minute or so just by gravity. So now that you've got the entire circuit set up, you're just hanging two bags of fluid, and by gravity, you open up the clamps that go to the circuit, and the entire circuit fills with fluid. Okay, so this is not rocket science, Not right? rocket science. We've got a closed loop. The loop also opens to go to the patient. So now we've got two different pathways for where the fluid can go. Okay, and we're just trying to fill it up with some, yeah. with some fluid. We use this isolate solution, but now we've got fluid throughout the system, except there's some air still in it. Yeah. And actually there's going to be some air in the prime bags too. So what do you do? You take those prime bags and you hold them down and squeeze the prime bags. So you're squeezing all the air out into the circuit. We're now purposely pushing all the air from the prime bags into the circuit. Why are we doing that? Why are we putting air into the circuit? Because those prime bags also need to be air free. So you squeeze that air out, that goes into the circuit. And then the next thing you do is turn your circuit on. Okay. Your road of flow console RPMs, you just start turning that clockwise. As you turn that up, the rotaflow pump, the centrifugal pump starts to spin. The magnets spin, you get centrifugal force going forward, and now you've got the circuit on. Or a black and decker with some magnets attached to it if you're me in my, my garage. <laughs> Go to the website and then we'll probably try and post that one as well where Zach actually was able to make a rotaflow pump work by mounting magnets to the end of his uh, black and decker drill. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. Okay. So we're getting the air out because we don't want the air to go into the patient. And you're telling me that I do that by flowing through a closed circuit. The air goes through the oxygenator. And when it goes through the oxygenator, it goes out of the circuit. Well, actually, yeah. So at the top of the oxygenator, when you're looking at it from the side is a little yellow de-airing exit port. And there's a yellow cap on that. You got to take that cap off and discard it. As the fluid is flowing through the circuit and as it goes through that oxygenator, that top of the oxygenator is the highest point in the circuit. And air is automatically removed from the circuit at that point. So simple, but pretty cool fluid dynamics going on here. Now, one more thing. We were talking about de-airing the circuit and priming the circuit. The last thing we do have to do is prime those two patient lines, which remember are hanging from your IV pole. So the very last thing you're going to do after you're running the circuit and de-airing everything is you're then going to take those two tubes off of the IV pole and hang them below the level of your IV fluid bags and just prime those two tubes, right? It's just getting those tubes filled with fluid and you got two ratchet clamps on there and you clamp those guys down. Getting the air out. Getting the air out. Okay. You now have a primed circuit, de-aired prime circuit. Don't forget now, you've got to attach an oxygen source to your oxygenator. It's easy to forget this one. In our facility, we've got our ECMO cart, and at the bottom of the ECMO cart are two oxygen cylinders. One is backup, one is being used. Simply connect oxygen tubing from the oxygen supply, crank it up to five liters, 100% O2, 
and attach it to your oxygenator. So this seems ridiculous, but believe me, it can happen. There's so much stuff going on. You forget to turn the oxygen on, all of a sudden you have dark red, dark red patient problem. Okay, the very last minor step that you've got to do is you have to attach the flow probe. And this is a piece that's on the road of flow pump itself. You take that flow probe and you attach it to that little piece of plastic that is right after the pump. And that's going to tell us how much flow we're getting through the circuit. Okay, so nurses or technicians or perfusionists are oftentimes responsible for this part. You understanding how to do it, though, will allow you to troubleshoot many of the problems that happen once you're initiating ECMO. Okay, Joe, so I put in the first cannulas. Done. I dilated up to the big cannulas. Done. I'm about to initiate ECMO because I've already primed my pump. Wait, I've got stop all the right air there, Zach. Stop right there. Yep. Okay, there's three things that you need to remember before you put your patient on ECMO. Number one, are you heparinized? This patient has to be heparinized. You're going to give them 5,000 units of IV heparin. Remember that your tubing is bioline coated. It's heparin-bonded tubing, the PVC tubing that's in your circuit, but the patient is not. So the patient's going to clot, and the worst thing that could happen is the patient clots. You got to have 5,000 units of heparin on. Number two, attach your O2 source. Remember, we talked about this. It's an easy point of failure, but you've got to have your O2 source. Just confirm it at this point. And number three, this is a biggie, no open central lines. Zach, why is it important that we don't have any open central lines in this patient when you're putting them on pump? Talk about air embolism. You are sucking with negative pressure in that right atrium. If you have a central line, it is a big problem. You're going to be sucking in a lot of air. Okay. So now you close the recirculation bridge. You open the clamps to the patients. You turn the pump on and slowly start increasing RPMs. Your patient is now on total heart-lung bypass. At this point, there are again three critical things to consider just after your patient is on bypass. Kind of a recurring theme here where we've got threes of everything. Three seems to be the, there's three steps of eCPR and there's three critical things before you put them on bypass. Well, here you go. There are three more things to confirm right after you put your patient on bypass. Okay. Uh, number one, the arterial line should have bright red blood coming out of it. That's oxygenated bright red blood. And the venous line should be a dark red. And initially, within the first few seconds, it can sometimes be difficult to distinguish. But after about 30 seconds or so of running the pump, it should be quite obvious that you've got one bright red and one dark red. Zach, what does it mean if you don't have two different colors? Okay, so let's think about this. If they're both dark, if they're both dark, so that means that blood is coming out deoxygenated, it's now going back into the patient deoxygenated. What does that mean? You aren't oxygenating the blood, which means you need to check your O2 source. Is your oxygen on? Is it connected? Both Joe and I have made this mistake. <laughs> so that's dark, dark. Okay. What's bright red, bright red? Bright red, bright red means that you are sucking out oxygenated blood, which usually means one thing. You put two cannulas in the artery or you have the cannulas switched, meaning you have the venous line in the artery and the arterial line in the vein. So that is a big problem if you have bright red, bright red. I know you've made that mistake before, but I never have, ever, <laughs> ever. Okay. Let's go check that one. <laughs> okay. So uh, I said there were three things to confirm right after you put a patient on heart-lung bypass, and the first one is going to be make sure your lines show bright red in one, dark red in the other. Uh, number two, make sure your cannulas are secured to the skin with suture. Has this ever happened to you? 
They go to move the patient. They adjust the patient. They're taking the patient to the cath lab, and one of the cannulas rips out of the leg because somebody forgot to tie it in. This happens so often. You've got to be so careful with these lines. We're in a rush. We're trying to do all these things to time, time is myocardium, all that stuff. Be careful with your lines even after you secure them. And you guys know how to throw in uh, chest tubes and you know how to secure a chest tube to the chest wall. It's the exact same technique as putting in and securing down a chest tube. And remember, even when the cannula moves just a little bit, we're talking about bleeding problems and bleeding is a huge issue with ECMO. So you want to try and keep those cannulas from moving at all. Okay, so we said three, three critical things to consider right after the patient was on heart-lung bypass. Number one, arterial line red, venous line dark. Number two, cannulas are secured to the skin using suture and are tight. And the last one is make sure your recirculation bridge is closed. If it's not closed, the fluid is going to take the path of least resistance. And let me tell you, the path of least resistance is not through the patient. So it's going to go through that recirculation line and you're not going to catch it and you're not going to have your patient on bypass. What does that look like, Joe, if it's going through the circulation line and you've got cannulas in the patient with open lines? So you're going to have bright red blood coming out of the venous side, out of the oxygenator. It's going to go bright red through the recirculation line and bright red coming back into the system and very little happening on the patient side. Okay, Zach, we now have our patient on complete heart-lung bypass. Now, how do we know if your patient is hemodynamically optimized, how do we know if we're running things at the right rates? How do we know if our flow is adequate? What numbers are important to us? Well, there's a few things to consider here. Zach, how many things do you think we have to consider? I'm going to guess three. So three things to consider at this point. Those three things. Number one, optimize blood flow. Number two, check an arterial blood gas. And number three, optimize your systemic vascular resistance. And why does all this stuff matter? Because we want to optimize perfusion pressures to the patient's tissues. And these three things are going to get you there. So number one, the very first thing we're going to do is optimize blood flow. And how do we do that? Well, once you have the patient on heart-lung heart bypass, we're now going to, on the Rotaflow console, we're going to grab the RPM dial and we're going to start cranking that up. The RPM dial will increase the spinning of the Rotaflow pump. Well, think about this. At the point at which you have sucked every ounce of blood out of that patient's right atrium, there will be no more flow. No matter how much you turn that RPM up more, you're going to get no more flow. And so how are you going to know when that happens? Well, two ways. So number one, you're going to slowly increase the rate of your RPMs. As you turn that dial up, you're going to reach a point where any further increase in your RPMs does not result in any further increase in flow. That's one way. And the other way is that as you increase that flow rate, if the pressure inside that vessel, the negative pressure that's generated by pulling fluid out of that venous line overwhelms the IVC, that IVC is going to start to get caught in the little holes of the venous cannula. And then it's going to cause something called chatter. And you're going to see this chatter. It's a shuddering of the lines that occurs. And we've seen this before. We were at Jim Manning's lab and saw the pigs on ECMO and how the damage that that does. So chatter ECMO. looks like nothing on the outside of the body. Just a little movement of the cannula inside, major catastrophe, major damage going on to that IVC. And the point is maximum flow with a minimum amount of RPM necessary to generate that flow. Next, you're going to check an SVO2. There's a little pigtail catheter that comes off of the circuit right before it enters the oxygenator. That is your SVO2. You don't have to draw venous blood. Just draw a little sample off of that and send that off. 
This is the same thing as the Manny Rivers, early goal-directed therapy, Edwards catheter stuff. Think of it the same way. You're looking for an SVO2 of above 70. So physiologically, let me just take this through this. So what I'm saying is that I want to check how much oxygen is left in the circuit, in that right atrium, it's basically a surrogate for this venous cannula, how much oxygen is left after it goes through the body. And if that is less than 70, that means that we are not getting enough perfusion not enough oxygen to the tissues because it's sucking more out and therefore we need better flow. That's absolutely right. Now there's three ways that we can increase flow. So number one, flow rates, as I just mentioned, are very strongly associated with volume. So if you don't have enough patient volume, whether that's crystalloid or red blood cells in the patient, you're going to get volume drops at the venous cannula that's going to suck all that blood out of the right atrium early and you're not going to be able to generate enough flow. So step number one is increase volume. Step number two is maybe your venous cannula isn't positioned very well. Maybe one of the inflow holes are up against the IVC. Maybe it's a little too deep so it's up in the SVC. Maybe it's a little too shallow so it's down in the distal IVC. And either way, consider repositioning your venous cannula to improve flow rates. You can check that with an ultrasound. You can check that with a chest x-ray. Fantastic. So Zach, you've got your patient adequately volume resuscitated. They're volume replete. You've confirmed that your cannula is in the perfect position and you've got a patient who's on, let's say, four liters of flow right now and you check an SVO2 and the SVO2 is still 50. You know you need more flow. What other options do you have? So crazy additional options here is that you put in a second venous cannula. You could put in a high line. You can put in a jugular vein cannula and get more out of that right atrium. Or even a subclavian vein cannula, but you can put in a high line and get uh, extra flow out of the venous system that way, yeah? Yep. So just to conceptualize what Joe just said, we're looking at the flow on the machine. The machine says adequate flow, something that we would think of, four liters, probably enough. Sometimes we can just use three liters if we're trying to get return of spontaneous circulation. But when we're post-ROSC, we're trying to get this patient optimized. We try and get the best flow. We see that we have sufficient flow on the monitor. Then we check SVO2. If that's low, that means we're still not getting enough perfusion. So we need to add volume or we need to get more out of the right atrium. Okay, next, we talked about there being three critical values to optimize for ECMO. Number one was optimizing blood flow. We just talked about that. If flow is too low, you either infuse volume, reposition the cannula, or consider another venous cannula. Number two, arterial blood gas analysis. Now, what's important here is that this is a actual art line or a arterial blood gas analysis you're getting off the patient. You cannot get this off the little pigtail that comes off just after the oxygenator. But it's so much easier it's, there. Yeah, I mean, you just do pull a little <laughs> blood off of there, right? But what is that showing you? All that that sample is showing you is whether or not your oxygenator is working. That is not what's going on at the patient. So you need to get a real arterial line or an arterial sample. Okay. So and you're usually we're doing that where, Joe? Shit, I don't know. Where are you getting it from? The right radial artery. Oh, is that right? Yep. The right radial artery is where you want to put in your uh, art line after you put somebody on ECMO. I got to stop cannulating the carotid. Got it. <laughs> okay. So now you want to analyze your arterial blood gas. All right. What are our goals? Our goals for our ABG are exactly the same as any other patient. You want a PAO2 of 80 to 100. You want a PACO2 of 35 to 45. Now, as a general rule of thumb, if you want to affect the oxygen 
you increase blood flow or change blood flow. If you want to affect the CO2, you change the sweep gas rate. Sweep gas? What the heck is that? Yeah, so all that this is is the liters per minute of your oxygen source. So, you know, you've got your patient who's sitting next to your ECMO patient on two liters nasal cannula. That two liters is what your sweep gas rate is, two liters a minute. So the bottom line here is that if you want to affect the CO2, you adjust the sweep gas rate. So if you've got a patient who has a PaO2 of less than 80 or below our goal, we want to increase our PaO2. What do we do? So if I want to increase my PaO2, you told me that oxygen is related to blood flow. Yeah. So I need to increase my blood flow. Yeah. So you need to increase your flow rate. If your PaO2 is greater than 100, it's above what we need. Now we got you know oxygen radicals. Hyperoxia. All that Danny badness. Davis doesn't like hyperoxia. So what can we do? to lower our oxygenation. So I want to keep my CO2, and we're going to talk about that in a second, down. But so I don't want to turn down the sweep gas or the wall oxygenation. What I want to do is I want to put in extra not oxygen. Yes, exactly right. So I want to get some sort of splitter, some sort of... Blender. Blender to keep my oxygen a little bit lower. Now, remember that some people might want to think, well, you know, what you do, if you have a low oxygen, you're going to increase your blood flow rate. And if you have a high oxygen, you're going to decrease your blood flow. No, 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 no. You do not want to decrease your flow rates. We'll deal with that on the flow rate side. That's what your SVO2 is for. No, 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 no. What you need to do is lower your FiO2. You add a blender. And basically all a blender does is takes room air and takes oxygen, 100% oxygen, mixes them together at the FiO2 that you want, and there you go. Cool. It's very cool. All right. So now your PaCO2 is low. It's less than 35. What am I going to do if my PaCO2 is less than 35? All right. So if my PaCO2, you said that is a result of oxygen sweep gas. So if my PaCO2 is too low, then I want to decrease my oxygen flow. Exactly right. And so by correlation, if your PaCO2 is greater than 45, it's too high. What do we do there? I want to increase my oxygen, and therefore I turn the oxygen liters per minute up on the wall. Yeah, so look at this. Now, we have almost everything perfectly set up for us. We've increased our flow rates to the point that you've got great flow through your patient. You've now adjusted your blood flow and your sweep gas rate to what your ABG showed. You're almost there. Remember, I said there were three things. Number one, optimize blood flow. Number two, check your ABG, in which case you're going to adjust either blood flow if it's an oxygen problem or sweep gas rate if it's a CO2 problem. The last thing you need to be concerned about, let me just kind of set something up for you here. Let's say you've got a patient who's got a a 70 kilo guy who's got a flow rate of five liters per minute. That's fantastic. But their mean arterial pressure is 40. A mean arterial pressure of 40 with a flow rate of four to five liters is something right now. Yeah, and so what we've traditionally done in the critical care world is calculate an SVR, all right? So, oh, dude, are you serious? <laughs> now, now, stay with me for just a second because I'm just going to explain this for the sake of understanding. Traditionally, the systemic vascular resistance, the SVR, equals your mean arterial pressure minus your CVP over your cardiac output. I see you sweating over there. That's <laughs> blah, 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 blah. Times 80. All right, one more time. Mean arterial pressure minus CVP over your cardiac output times 80. But remember, you have a mean arterial pressure because you have an art line in the right carotid artery, right? And then you have 
your CVP and a stroke. <laughs> <laughs> so your CVP, though, remember your CVP. You're sucking every ounce of blood out of that right atrium. Your CVP is zero. Cardiac output is nothing more than what your set flow rate is. In reality, to make this a lot simpler, your SVR, your systemic vascular resistance, is your mean arterial pressure, which you're taking off of your art line, over your blood flow, which is right there on your road to flow console, times eighty. And your goal number is greater than 800. Okay, so Joe, are you actually calculating this? No, no, God, no, are you kidding me? (laughs) So what are you doing? Remember, you can't even have an open CVP. You can't have an open um, venous system, so you can't even check a CVP in these folks. Okay. So eh, this is a little bit of uh, mental masturbation or whatever you want to call it, but the reality is is we're looking at a map and we're looking at the clinical picture, but I wanted to give you the basis for where that's coming from. But what you're saying is it's important for me to think about SVR. Exactly right. Why is it important for me to think about SVR? Yeah, so you can still have a patient who is in distributive shock and they are on the pump and you've replaced their heart and their lungs, but they still have these dilated leaky vessels. And the only way to know that is by looking at their SVR or, you know, by the next step down is looking at their map. So if you've got a patient who's got adequate flow, adequate oxygenation, adequate CO2 levels, and their blood pressure is in the toilet, they need a pressor. Pressor, okay. Pressor, yeah. So think about this for a second. Let's just say you've got your 50-year-old guy who just had the massive MI, right? You just got him on heart-lung bypass because he was in refractory VF. At this point, his EF, just for the sake of argument, is 10. So he's got no cardiac output. The last thing you want to do is give this guy some beta agonism. So Zach, what would be the perfect pressor for this patient? So since I'm in my LVAD mode, I'm going to use dobutamine and milrinone, right? I will kill you if you say that. (laughs) Okay, so I need a peripheral squeeze. And my love for peripheral squeeze is give me some phenylephrine. Phenylephrine, exactly right. And, you know, let's just let our hearts rest a little bit. Levofed would work. Levofed would be a mm, academically poorer choice in this situation. Go for the pure vasopressor. Go for some phenylephrine. What do you think, Joe, about some vaso? So what you're asking is vasopressin, correct? Yep. Vasopressin, I think, is a um, in this situation, is a very desirable drug. And so the way that I titrate this in is I will start the patient on phenyl. I'll titrate up the phenyl until I get a mean arterial pressure above 65. And at that point, I titrate in my vasopressin. And I'm doing that at the fixed dose, the fixed rate of vasopressin. And once that's going... I can then dial down on my vasopressor, which is phenylephrine. Joe, that was unbelievable. We just went through a ton of information. Ton of material, and yeah. It's good stuff. So let's just recap real closely to end everything. Where we did number one was priming the pump. Priming the pump was all about getting oxygen out so that you can get ready to put the patient on pump. The three critical steps before initiating bypass. Number one, heparinize the patient, 5,000 units. Number two, attach your O2 source, make sure your O2 source works. And number three, no open central lines. The second set of threes, after you start the pump, you're looking at the colors of the cannula. Dark, dark, bad. Bright, bright, bad. Dark, bright, good. You're going to look to secure the line so they don't come out, and then you're going to close the recirculation bridge. Okay, after you've had your patient on ECMO, you want to look at three critical values to optimize ECMO. Number one, optimize blood flow. You're going to crank up the RPMs until your increase in RPMs no longer increases flow. Check in SVO2. Make sure SVO2 is above 70 if it's not increased flow. Three ways to do that. Number one, infuse volume. Number two, reposition the venous cannula. And number three, Add another cannula if you have to. 
The second component, arterial blood gas analysis. Your goal is an ABG that is normal. Oxygen is affected by blood flow. CO2 is affected by sweep gas rate. And the third thing, optimizing SVR. And this is really nothing more than putting some squeeze on those vessels and the patient who is in distributive shock, adding vasopressors when your SVR and or your MAP is low. Okay, I think this wraps up another great episode of the ED ECMO podcast. I want to thank everybody out there for listening. Thank you for writing in. Thank you for commenting on the blog. We'll see you in our upcoming conferences. Come by, say hi. On behalf of Dr. Zach Shiner, this is Joe Belezzo for ED ECMO Podcast saying bye-bye.